0: Pondering them in her heart and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: You know, for decades, there's been observation about how we we push discomfort and that which causes us to to fear and to grow anxious to the side. Uh, Sociologists, commentators on culture have pointed out this happens a lot with death. We, in the last century and a half, have begun locating graveyards out in the furthest reaches of the suburbs, not in the city center. Uh, Before people even die, we send them off, oftentimes, to facilities where they're cared for rather than keeping them in the home. That's just one example of how we oftentimes move things away so that that which causes us discomfort, that which might strike us as... uh, challenging, as anxiety-producing, we can, we can keep at arm's length. We oftentimes do that even with celebrating religious customs like Advent. In the Middle Ages, Christians in Advent would have a somewhat different experience than perhaps the Hallmark Channel-style version that we tend to have today. They, too, would celebrate four weeks leading up to Christmas Day, and the weeks had themes like we do today. We oftentimes recount how we focus on peace on joy, on love, and on hope. They had four themes as well. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Now, the good news is we're week three, and so I I would be talking on heaven, and that's pretty happy. The bad news is the wider context is a little different in that older imagination of what's going on with the coming of Jesus. It's heavier, isn't it? Death and judgment and heaven and hell. Hell. And there's some good reasons that we tend to focus on peace and joy and love and hope. Uh, Ideas recovered in the Protestant Reformation, the idea that, that we have a gift of God and that it's meant to lift our eyes up, and that's good, but it oftentimes can serve like a filter or a sieve. It can cause us to miss things that are going on in the text, and right here in the text we see that in both Luke's account and Matthew's account of it, fear fear is a common experience. Fear has marked, uh, as we'll see, the life of Jesus' own family. His parents have to take him south to Egypt eventually, lest he be in danger of death. And so we'll see that fear is going to come in the story just a little bit later. But even here in this episode, fear is going to mark these shepherds as they're encountered by angels Angels, of course, surprise. This isn't a normal reality. They pop up, and first in verse 10, they report good news. They gospel. They, they share the good news uh, of what has been promised of old, that a child is to be born, that he's to be Messiah and Lord and Savior. And perhaps what we wouldn't expect, the shepherds, they are afraid. They have to be told, fear not. They have to be calmed. They have to be comforted. Because their first response is not one of delight and of joy, but of cowering, of anxiety, of worry. Worry is a part of our life, isn't it? Fear is a part of our day and age. We could think about it in broad terms. We could think about it in very personal terms. Broadly, just over a week ago, Andrew Sullivan wrote an essay in New York Magazine about how this has been a year of ever-increasing, almost histrionic fear. Fear of those outside our country who might undo us. Fear of those in our country who might somehow oppose what we know to be right, whoever we are on the left or the right, and might somehow undo the American project. He talks about how this has led to just this ever-increasing anxiety and acrimony. This uh, view of others as dangerous, right? And we often personally fear, don't we? We fear all sorts of things. We fear whether or not we're going we're to be able to make ends meet. We fear whether or not we're actually going to be able to perform at our job as is expected. Maybe as our family expects. Maybe in a way that accords with what our peer group, our friends, seem to be doing in their success. Can, can I make a name like they have? Can I perform? Can I be competent? Can I earn the kind of praise as my older sibling? right, Or as the other people in my community group? We may fear uh, that our family, that our marriage, or perhaps those who we wish were there but aren't, the fact that we don't have a spouse, we don't have children, that that's never going to be patched together, that's never going to be provided, that that somehow is going to fester like a wound forever. In all sorts of ways, we can be marked by fear. And so this morning, we do want to come to this word of peace, because peace is a word that means to undo fear. Peace is a gift that God provides that is meant to oppose and overwhelm our anxiety. And so we want to listen to what God sends angels to herald, where God turns up the volume and he sends down a whole heavenly host. And as we'll sing in a bit, the herald angels do sing, and they sing a word about peace. And so we want to explore that. As we look at the angel's song, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased there's there's i think two things we want to reflect on and the first is that here the angels herald a more glorious peace just a little bit ago trina read a passage from the prophet isaiah famous words you've heard them you've probably received them on a christmas card at some point from isaiah 9 for to us a child is born to us a son is given And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's better when a choir sings it to handle setting, but you get the idea. This remarkable promise of this child who's to be born, who mysteriously is going to reign and rule, and that's going to bring unending peace. And it sounds remarkable, and it sounds pretty straightforward, but it's worth reading what comes just before it. At the end of chapter 8, just a few verses before those wonderful off-sided verses in chapter 9, we read this, "'Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy.'" Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Peace is promised, and a child will bring peace through his reign and rule, but be careful because that peace may not be what you expect it to be. Because that peace may not simply address the problems or frustrations that you feel are front and center and of greatest priority. Now, we see how this plays out in the life of Jesus, don't we? Oftentimes, Those who are preaching through or writing about the gospel accounts will speak of what they sometimes call the messianic secret, that Jesus, who's going around Galilee, who's performing miracles, who's teaching powerfully and authoritatively, people immediately observe. He teaches with an authority that's not like others, not like the other religious leaders. He speaks as though he bears God's authority, And then he heals, and he casts out demons, and he forgives sin, and they're overwhelmed. And frequently, Jesus will say, hush, don't spread the word. And he will command them not to tell others of what he's done, of of what he's proclaiming, of what he's performing. And so preachers and commentators will speak of how he's trying to keep his messianic role as the Redeemer a secret for a time. Why is he doing that? He's doing it because it's very obvious throughout the accounts of the Gospels that there are a lot of assumptions about what this child will do. There are a lot of expectations about what the increase of that government might look like. We know there are zealots on the ground and they believe that peace must look like casting out Rome and once again having Jewish sovereignty there over the promised land. There are others much more cosmopolitan, as many in our day who would suggest, no, 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 peace isn't about somehow staking out our own claim and our own heritage and our own space, but rather it's about learning to more fully participate in the life of Rome. And so it's about actually fitting in with that wider world and that empire and growing monetarily and and politically uh, and culturally in all sorts of ways. Others, of course, have religious expectations. Peace is going to involve thinning out those who don't fit, those who don't conform to sort of the strict standards of of Jewish piety of the day. Right? Um, And then that'll break down into different groups that define piety in all sorts of ways: scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and so forth. Jesus realizes that when word is out that there's a Messiah, there's a Savior, there's a King, people immediately have all sorts of notions about what problems he's there to address and what solutions must look like. And so he doesn't want words spreading too fast and too far until he can challenge some of those assumptions. Because he knows at the beginning of his ministry what's the first text he's going to quote. It's from the prophet Isaiah, where he's going to speak of one Who has the spirit of the sovereign Lord upon him, quoting from Isaiah 61. And he knows also these words from Isaiah 8. Don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Now in saying that, Isaiah isn't saying political unrest is not a problem. He's not saying lack of economic resources isn't an issue. He's not saying physical ailments aren't a real matter to be addressed. But he is reprioritizing how we think about our issues, how we name our problems, how we look to God to provide solutions. And it's that that we see addressed here in the angel's song, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What does it mean to glorify God? Glory speaks of weightiness, of gravitas, of significance. It it speaks of comparative value, it speaks of priority, it speaks of centrality. We are to treat God as, as central, as most weighty. What does it mean to, to glorify God in our, our search and our hope for peace? What do the angels sing of? They don't herald here simply a word that whatever issues you've got, God is going to address them. But they issue a, a word and a promise of a more glorious peace. That yes, God will address the many ails and frustrations, the many sins and struggles of our life, but all the better, all the more glorious, God is going to address a more central issue. You know, I seem to experience this oftentimes. Perhaps some of you, like me, are someone whose only tool in your toolbox is the checkbook. And so when something goes wrong at home, um, I I often have to call in someone who knows what they're doing. And uh, I remember one time having a plumber come in And I thought there was a leak and I just couldn't fix it. And I thought this is going to be rather straightforward. And the plumber's going to take care of a a couple pipes that are are off, and that'll be that. And so I expect it to be a rather brief and efficient affair. And of course, I find out quickly that the, the plumber gets down there and he looks and then he sort of steps back and gets all philosophical looking, kind of pondering at the thing. And he points out that all of this is wrong. All of this is wrong that the way in which pipes are completely laid out in my kitchen is upside down and topsy-turvy, and it, it will never be right. And it's not simply a matter of fixing the one thing I knew was wrong, but that there's a much deeper fundamental issue that's got to be addressed. Otherwise, we're going to keep coming back to the one pipe that, that goes off and has to be addressed again and again and again. And that's what we hear in the angel song. We hear of a more glorious peace, a more fundamental peace, that God doesn't simply want to address my physical disease. God doesn't simply want to address my own pangs of conscience, my own abiding anxieties about whether I'm enough. God doesn't simply want to address and repair the the relationship that's gone cold or acrimonious. God wants to get underneath all of that. God wants to provide a deeper peace, a more glorious peace, That I would come to find deep rest and order and fit and wholeness in God above all else. That's what it means to glorify God in the highest, even in our search for peace. Even in how we think about what that that government of the Messiah is like, where he weaves back together all those strands that have come undone. Now, if you're anything like me, you might think, well, that sounds great, but Frankly, that's not what I want. That's not what's been on my mind. When my head hits the pillow at night, I am not thinking first and foremost about leaning into and enjoying peaceful communion with God. I'm thinking about how I'm still stewing over that, that argument with my spouse or how my kid just won't get it together or how I, I, I can't kick that habit. And again and again, I cave, right? Right? What what does this text have to say to us, to those of us who don't glorify God in the highest, who don't seek God first and foremost as our peace that we might have here on earth? I think it gives us the example of the shepherds. They're a strange lot. Just as odd as it is for angels to sing from on high, it is equally odd that shepherds are brought into the story. We've had the temple and the priest, we've had the virgin. And now we have shepherds, dirty guys working out in the field, no influence, no resources, oftentimes no home to call their own. And the angels show up, and they they announce the good news, and they sing of its glory. And we don't immediately hear, of course, that the shepherds are just overwhelmed and taken with delight. They puzzle, but they act. You see how they act. Verse 15, they say, let's go to Bethlehem and let's see. Now, by the end of the story, they are participating in the wonderment, in the amazement, in the delight in what God is doing, that God has come down and he's dwelling with us. But their first impulse isn't one of arrival. It's one of expectancy. It's one of curiosity. They, they lean in, let's go and see. what would it mean for us today? What would that pilgrimage be? It's not a journey to the Middle East, but it's going to where God is promising to act. It's leaning into those places where God's presence is promised, going and seeing if it's worthy of our wonder, going and seeing if it will sustain our delight, going and seeing if it really does give glory to God in the highest, and it proves to provide peace on earth for those with whom he's pleased. Would it look this week like leaning in as we come to the table and coming expectantly that God would meet you and provide a deep comfort for whatever whatever wound may lay there. Would it look this week perhaps like going to community group being honest that you need the words and you need the listening ear of your sister and of your brother? Would it mean going this week, day by day, listening to God's Word and and meditating prayerfully upon the Bible readings that as a community we turn to? What would it mean for us this week to take that pilgrimage, leaning in, seeking and going, hoping that God will provide that kind of presence, that kind of brilliance that leads us to wonder and to amazement, that like the shepherds, we then join in the song and we too report what we've heard and so even if, even if you are harried by all the other distractions, even if you find that your deepest desire is not for God, but for stuff that God might give you, this text, it gives you instruction as to how God can reorient, God can rewire, God can reprioritize, that we wouldn't be satisfied with the superficial and the fleeting, but that we would, through his provision there, learn to delight in what's substantial, what's deeper, what's lasting. There's a second thing we see here. And I think it responds to what might be our most immediate response. If if giving glory to God in the highest means among other things that God is our deepest peace and that the peace and the order and the wholeness that we need is first and foremost about being right with God before it's about anything else. And thus if if pursuing that glory and that peace means that we ought to seek to be prioritized, that we find our delight there, and that we find our frustration above anywhere else there, that we learn to lament above all else the fact that we don't enjoy God as much as we should, our immediate reaction can sometimes be, well, does that mean I've got to check out from everything else? Does that somehow dishonor this world, the people around me, the real legitimate hurts and sorrows that I see on the news and that I hear so often around the dinner table or in conversation in the lobby and elsewhere? Does it mean that somehow because I'm supposed to care above all else for peace with God that I, I become of no earthly good to my community, to my city, to the, the men and women around me? And it's here I I think we want to note there's a surprising gift that comes in this more glorious peace. There's a surprising gift. In that essay, Andrew Sullivan wrote about the acrimony and the fear of our day and age. He talked about what's causing that festering fear of one another. And he said this. He said, if your ultimate meaning is derived from religion, you have less need of deriving it from politics or ideology, or trusting entirely in some single, solitary leader or movement. He talks about how it's precisely when we fail to lean in to God as our satisfying, lasting peace that we start expecting too much of other things. We start demanding what is unrealistic from those around us. He talks about how this plays out in politics, most especially We start to expect that that order, that progress, that these things are going to satisfy. These things are going to give meaning and significance to our lives. But of course, he points out at best, even if things are going well, you have to ask the same questions two years later and four years later and again and again. And nothing is ever solid and substantial. Nothing is ever where you can hang your coat and know that it will rest there. Years ago, C.S. Lewis talked about it this way. He said, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. It's impossible in this context not to inquire what our own civilization's been putting first for the last several years. And the answer is plain. It's been putting itself first. To preserve civilization has been the great aim. The collapse of civilization, the great bugbear." Peace, a high standard of life, hygiene, transport, science, amusement, all these which are what we usually mean by civilization, they have been our ends. But what if the shoe's on the other foot? What if civilization has been imperiled precisely by the fact that we've all made it our highest good? Perhaps it can't be preserved that way. Perhaps civilization will never be safe until we care for something else More than we care for it. And consider the the example of the shepherds again. They hear the song, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. And they decide, struck by its oddity, that they should go and see. And so they do, and they journey to Bethlehem and they take it in. And where does the story end? But in verse 20, the shepherds returned. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. They didn't stay in Bethlehem. They didn't remain with the child. They didn't stay on pilgrimage, but they returned. They returned to the flock to whom they'd been given care. They returned to the field, which was theirs to watch over, They returned to their work and their calling, but they returned with praise. They returned with glory. What would it mean for you to know a deeper peace that rises above the kinds of successes that we mark at work or at home? And what would it mean for you to know a deeper peace that abides even amidst trying circumstances at work? and trying conditions at home. What would it mean to return there, having seen with wonderment and amazement God's presence and the promise of a more glorious peace that you could praise and glorify God back in the field, that you could exalt His name there as you tend the flock? I think those shepherds were the most remarkable shepherds you could probably ever fathom after that visit, after that pilgrimage. The kind of care, the kind of alertness, the kind of loyalty, the kind of courage they must have had to care for those sheep under their care, to be watchful of the neighbors amongst whom they'd go because they had been so struck by what they had seen and the peace that they had taken in. Rowan Williams talks about how decades ago, as World War II was winding down, and as as sort of the war machine of the American economy uh, was looking at the fact that we wouldn't have to be mounting this remarkable uh, outlay of material and human capital. You're not going to have to keep building bombers and bombs. You're not going to have to keep the economy humming uh, toward the war effort. And so planners began speaking of what they called the peace dividend, this investment in infrastructure, this investment in hard work, uh, this investment was suddenly going to be able to yield a dividend. And the question was, what would we invest it in once you don't have to fight? Once there's peace, what, what benefits, what gains can be had by investing that kind of capital, that kind of energy, that kind of grit into something else? And time and again throughout the decades of the 20th century, you would hear this language of a a peace dividend being spoken of. And Williams points out that's profoundly connected, and that's profoundly illuminating for what happens when we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, when, like those shepherds, we go to Bethlehem and we lean in with wonder and amazement to see the peace he's provided. Where will we put our energies when we don't have to worry about making a name for ourselves? Where will we give up our resources when we don't, we don't have to claw to, to survive? Where will we devote ourselves and our, our waking hours when we know that it, it's not about keeping up with the Joneses? It's not about constant upward social mobility, but it's about service because we have been served by one who is Lord. It might look like this. Some of you this week perhaps have heard the remarkable story of of our brothers and sisters in China. And this is just something of a a crescendo of what's been a a rising uh, struggle over the last months and even years. But this past week, on December 9th, Wang Yi, senior pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, was imprisoned. He was arrested. And he's in a a secret prison facility, along with his wife, and we gather over 100 of the 750 church members. And he had a statement released 48 hours after he was in custody. You can find it later on your phone. It's, it's titled, My Declaration of Faithful Obedience. He says this, He says, if God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know of Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I'm joyfully willing to submit to God's plans. For his plans are always benevolent and good. I have no fear of any social or political power. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that's no longer afraid of it. Now, what's striking about those words is that he wrote them in late September, over two months before he was imprisoned. This man knew this was coming. This man thought about the eventuality that he and the men and women that he baptized and cried with would likely be imprisoned. And in late September, he wrote this piece and he prepared it and he edited it over the fall with instructions that when he's kept in prison for more than 48 hours, that will be the sign that he's likely not ever coming out and that they ought to release this. He had time to stop. He had time to calculate that life and prosperity and comfort and ease would likely be found if he went and became something other than an underground pastor. But two months ago, he wrote that. and He stayed at his pulpit, and he kept baptizing men and women, and he continued to lean in to serving his city. Faithfulness is the adjective that he names and that you can see in that story what would it look like if like him knowing fear cast out if if like him knowing a more glorious peace that exceeds circumstances and passes all understanding what would it look like if men and women adults and children in our community were able to say that that we were not afraid And therefore, that we were willing. We were willing to set aside our own comforts for the sake of the downtrodden. We were willing to set aside our own affinity for people like us for the sake of those who are so often feeling as though they're on the outside. What would it look like if we knew that kind of peace and we were able to invest that dividend into the lives of the men and women, of the known and the forgotten in our communities? We talk oftentimes in our community groups about being community for our communities. It seems to me that that peace dividend that flows out of nothing less than knowing a more glorious peace that exceeds better circumstances and resolved issues, and that ultimately has to find its roots in knowing that you're, you're at one with God, that you needn't fear before Almighty God, but that you can know that he is God with us, that he has made his home here, he has tabernacled in our midst. And that leaning in and going and seeing and being filled with wonder and amazement, we're then freed. We're freed not to get our own way, we're freed not to protect our own rights, we're freed not to get ours, but we're freed to care, we're freed to spend, we're freed to give away our lives, and our livelihood for the sake of those around us. We're free to sit with the depressed person who is, frankly, cranky and frustrating, all the more so because they feel alone. And so we're free to sit, not to fix, not to berate, but to be present. We're free to reach out to the person who just doesn't fit. They can't dress like others. They can't speak of involvement in business and work like others. In our circles, they may seem a misfit, but we're freed to be there and to, to dignify them as being one like these shepherds to whom the glorious message goes. We're freed not to be encumbered by what we've done. We're freed not to be defined by our failures. We're freed not to be named by our successes, whatever they may be, for none of that will last. We're freed humbly to go and to be with others as brothers and sisters I suspect that if we knew that peace, I suspect if, if we knew that kind of wonder and that glory in our very midst, that we of all people would make the best and the most loving and the most sacrificial of neighbors. That we in our own ways on Monday morning and throughout the week might contribute to our city, to Orlando and to Central Florida in small ways that bear witness like that of these Chinese Christians and of these shepherds of old. Let's pray and ask that God might work in us. Lord, if we're honest, most of us actually feel quite a bit like the shepherds. We feel like so much of our life is spent in areas where your glory doesn't come. And oftentimes we wonder what it would mean for us to live faithful before you in the grit and grime of our daily affairs. And so we thank you for the, the witness of your grace shown to these sinners. We pray that we would be so taken by the song of the angels that we too, curious and pinpricked by the brilliance and beauty of what they, they recount, that we would go and we would seek that we would lean into your means of grace, that we would lean into your word and sacrament, that we would lean into you in prayer and meditation and community, and that we, like them, may find that Jesus is the pearl of great price, and he's the treasure hid in a field. And in knowing him as God made human, as the Word who's become flesh, we might be so taken and so filled with your peace that like those shepherds, we would return with praise and glory and that we might be a blessing and see the transforming presence of Jesus and the empowering work of the gospel go out into our community. And so for that, we need your help. And for that, we need nothing less than your very presence. And so we pray that the same Jesus who has come and will come again would come now into our hearts and grant us deep peace. Amen.